This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. In September 2017, I was reading the Columbia Tribune newspaper in Columbia, Missouri, and came across an article titled, Rockbridge Christian Church Joins Sanctuary Movement. I read the article and the opening lines read, quote, The congregation of Rockbridge Christian Church voted Sunday to become a sanctuary church where people at risk of deportation can take shelter, end quote. Fascinated by this line, I sent the pastor of the Disciples of Christ Church, Reverend Sarah Clausen, an email and invited her to come be a guest speaker in my religious studies class. She and I had a nice talk over coffee about the course and this radio show, and we met up in February to record this conversation. I wanted to speak with Sarah because of the sanctuary vote in her church, which is only becoming more and more relevant in the age of border camps for children that made international news in June of 2018. At the end of June, as nationwide protests against family separation inspired and rocked the nation, Claussen spoke to a crowd of hundreds of protesters in Columbia, Missouri, saying, quote, It has been an important thing for our congregation to take action. So I'm happy to come and speak because it's something that connects with our values. We as a faith community consider welcoming others and hospitality to be important to who we are. Also justice and standing with those who are vulnerable. End quote. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Reverend Sarah Clausen of Rockbridge Christian Church in Columbia, Missouri. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I am here today with Sarah Klassen from the Rockbridge Christian Church. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on to Classical Ideas. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So I'm curious if you can start off by just introducing yourself and talking a little bit about your current role here at Rockbridge Christian Church. I am, so my name is Sarah Clausen. I'm the pastor here at Rockbridge Christian Church. I've been the pastor about a year and a half, a little over a year and a half, was called uh, and began in June of 2016, had been a member of the congregation before, so it was an internal call, which is a little unusual, uh, started as the pastor knowing a whole bunch of people in the church and um, really got to get going quickly because of all those pre-existing relationships. So it's been a great year and a half, and I'm really happy to to be serving in this way. How did you get involved uh, in this particular church? If I might, if I might ask, I uh, my partner and I moved here to Columbia in 2011. She's also uh, an ordained minister in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. When we moved, I was not ordained. And for her credentialing, we needed to affiliate with a Disciples of Christ congregation. And so we visited around and ended up putting our membership here at Rockbridge. 
I ended up going through the ordination process sponsored by this congregation, and we both uh, built some great pre-existing relationships. But one of the reasons that we were drawn here to this congregation is because it was open and affirming, which means it's LGBTQ inclusive, had done all kinds of work on that 15, 20 years ago. And so that was part of the DNA already, in addition to being more widely inclusive and generally progressive around social justice and things like that. There were a lot of reasons to to become connected to Rockbridge. One of the things that I like so much about what you just said is that I constantly am hearing things in the media and around the world about how Christianity is not progressive, not like um, having open and values and things like that, like you just mentioned. So one of my favorite things to do is to bust that stereotype, bust that idea in people's minds that there's not people within Christian churches doing open and affirming and welcoming uh, environments like that. So I'm really glad that you just talked about that. Can you talk a little bit about what your ordination process was like? How do you become ordained in Disciples of Christ? The Disciples of Christ are congregationally based denominations. So we're not very hierarchical, but we have each local congregation affiliates with a region. And the region affiliates with the denomination. And so through that structure, there's a process for credentialing ministers. And uh, a few years ago, the denomination tried to be- began to standardize that. It had kind of varied from region to region. So I came into kind of a standardized process. There are a couple of requirements that everyone has to move through ordination, a, a seminary degree or some alternative track uh, education. So some theological formation is always part of it, of course. And then having a sponsoring congregation who can say, yeah, this person has gifts for ministry. So there's some relational accountability too. And my process was over about two years. Sometimes they're much longer. Two years would be about the shortest because I came in with some ministerial experience. I came in with a seminary degree and then put together a big notebook talking about competencies and growing edges in ministry and met with a regional body who interviewed me a couple of times. This denomination, does it, because it's congregationally based and there's a lot of, uh, there's it's a, it's a kind of a big tent, a wide umbrella. So we have a lot of theological diversity that we can hold. Um, and so I didn't have to take any tests. I didn't have to affirm a theological creed. We're also a non-creedal denomination. So uh, it was more about how you think and um, how do your values align with kind of some of the general principles of who we are as disciples. But I didn't have to assent to this or that or this as part of the process. So when you say you're congregationally based, do I have, did I say that right? Yeah, sure. What does that mean? Because I think that um, the way that churches run, like if there's like presbyters or congregationally based, I think these are vocabulary words that a lot of people in the country don't even know what they mean. Sure, this is this is good church nerd stuff. So, Absolutely, uh, I love it. Ch- church polity, we call it. Kind of the uh, politics, the way we, we do church together, uh, how the body functions. And so congregationally based or congregational polity means that each congregation has a certain degree of autonomy. So here at Rockbridge Christian Church, we own the property that our bill, our congregation owns the building and the property that it sits on. It doesn't belong to, a, to another jurisdiction, as in some more hierarchical denominations. The congregation calls its minister. I'm not appointed, but the congregation, when I was called, went through 
through a discernment process? What kind of person would be suited to lead us in this time and did interviews and that kind of thing? So they choose. It's not appointed by a bishop or a, any kind of any kind of hierarchical structure. Uh, so those are a couple of the distinctives for us and other churches that are congregationally based. So would an example of a more hierarchical one be like the Catholic Church, for example? Absolutely, Catholic Church, and then even other kind of mainline churches. We think of United Methodists who have that system, that appointment system, where clergy and cr- clergy are assigned to congregations. The bishop helps with that process. The congregations have a little bit of a say, but it's a whole different structure for how they arrange their, their togetherness. And you just said the term that I think would be really important for everybody to hear. You just said the word mainline. Is this a mainline denomination? Yes. So mainline as opposed to evangelical. Uh, So typically uh, more progressive, I guess, would be one of the distinctives. So what is the, like, is there like a really precise division line between a mainline versus an evangelical denomination within American Christianity? Oh, I... You know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, we we can kind of have general groupings, uh, but but there would be certainly disciples of Christ churches who are very evangelical in their theology. If we think about evangelicalism as a real emphasis on a personal relationship with God and uh, a real emphasis on salvation in a certain kind of way. There are certainly disciples churches that would fit in that, and then there are disciples churches that wouldn't. And the the same could probably be said for most denominations. I don't think clear delineations are part of the religious landscape here. So when you say there's like, so within Disciples of Christ, there can be differences from church to church to church. So it really just kind of depends on what building you're in. Is is, Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, uh, so the, some of the disciples' distinctive, some of the things that would weave us together across theological differences or geographical differences uh, would be um, the we do believer's baptism, so not not infants, but it's a, a choice to be made as a whatever it is. And mm-hmm. it can be 8-year-old or 20-year-old or, or whatever. But it's a, a believer's baptism or adult baptism. The other big distinctive that you'll find in Disciples Church is that we do communion every Sunday. And that's part of our founding story. Uh, we The disciples were a frontier denomination that broke apart from from higher church kind of, kind of Organi- organizational bodies. Uh, the Presbyterians were one. Uh, there's a founding story of uh, Alexander Campbell, who who was Scottish Presbyterian, had, came from a Scottish Presbyterian family. Uh, part of the tradition that he was raised in around communion was that people were examined and found worthy or not to receive communion. And those who are worthy received a token. And then on the day of communion, it was a big deal they would bring their token forward and receive the bread and the cup and alexander campbell was sitting there was it alexander was it thomas's father i i i don't i'm not a church historian sure but um mr campbell say uh uh on the day on the that day had his token we felt very conflicted about just how the whole process went and so when it came his the time for him to go forward to receive communion he put his token down on the table and walked out and that's part of the story so we do celebrate communion every sunday and say everybody's welcome 
Uh, we don't have an examination process. All believers are welcome. Some disciples churches say, at Rockbridge we say every everybody's well. Believer, not believer, Christian, non-Christian, agnostic, atheist, whatever. Come to the table. It's not our table. And God welcomes everyone. And so that's a, that's a big part of our identity. Very cool. What do you know when this congregation sort of formed, like what uh, era of history? The the denomination or the congregation? The con- like, uh, well, the denomination entirely, disciples. Yeah, the disciples of Christ. So, so it's a frontier denomination, relatively young. Early 1800s, there were a few revivals. Uh, founders, Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, especially Alexander, and Barton Stone, who had these movements toward restoring the New Testament church. So it's a restorationist movement, similar to, you know, if we think of Anabaptism during the heart of the Reformation, kind of stripping away some of the structure and institutions and saying, we want to be the New Testament church. So disciples or the the Stone Campbell movement is what we say was the frontier, American frontier version of that with its own emphases. So 1800s and then kind of institutional structure came later into the 1900s even, and there have been some splits and things like that. Other other groups connected with the Stone Campbell movement are the Churches of Christ, who are much more theologically conservative than Disciples of Christ, but have that those same historical origins, and then independent Christian churches as well. Fantastic. It's so interesting hearing about the small histories within each congregation. Um, that's one of my favorite things to to ask people about and, you know, to dig into a little bit more because there's so much diversity within Christianity itself. It's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it, how much diversity there is within the church. So I'm going to ask you, I want to talk about some things um, today about your work and about your life here at Disciples of Christ Rockbridge Christian Church. And all these questions are just in your own view, because um, one of the things I think it's really important to mention whenever we have these types of conversations is that we're not speaking for anybody else. You know what I mean? So in your view, I'm curious if you can say, what is the goal or the purpose of Christianity in the 21st century? Christianity in the 21st century. So... We'll see if this works around to answering, not answering, we'll just say responding. These, sure. these aren't questions that have answers right. per se. Um, one of the things that I say, I, I think I think of Christianity as a compelling way to shape one's life. I think of it as an extraordinarily compelling story to live by. And I say that in contradistinction to all the other stories that ask for our time and attention and energy and worldview. Um, whether it's the economic milieu we live in, the, the capitalism or, or the inequalities or however we want to frame that, or whether it's uh, other kind of power-based hierarchies, con- consumerism. There are all kinds of stories that kind of that ask for our loyalty today. Empire is a big story, right? And I think of Christianity as one of few. Uh, none of those that I've mentioned are worthy of our lives and our souls. I think of Christianity as a story that is. And that doesn't mean it's a singular story or it's not without all kinds of inherent challenges. It doesn't mean it hasn't 
aligned itself with things like empire for since its birth or, or since the early centuries of its development. But uh, still, still, there's something deep and profound, something that's worthy of our inner lives, and that's something that's worthy of our energy as we express what it means to be human in the world. So I, I get the impression from your building here and um, the things that are on the wall around your church and the flyers that I see on the tables in the entryway and news stories that I hear about your congregation here in our city, I get the impression that the concepts of action, justice, equality, um, that they inspire you, especially as a pastor. And so I'm curious if you can say how um, the Gospels and the life of Jesus inspire you in your social awareness and your actions that you take every day. We would be one of those churches that say, yes, yes, Jesus was a very political figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the kind of splitting of the private spirituality from public presence is not something that we would w- agree with. So when Jesus um, healed and when he uh, proclaimed good news to the poor and released for the captives, those were those were public statements that had to do with more than just a kind of a spirituality. And so uh, what does that look like in every every age? Well, it looks it looks different. And that's continually unseating us and calling us towards some kind of action or involvement in the world, service uh, and justice, uh, the work of peace, uh, the work of compassion and community and the work of challenging the powers, whatever and, and whatever form that takes it, you know, it sometimes aligns with certain issues and sometimes it aligns with certain kinds of relationships. But I think that's that's something that I believe and I think by and large this congregation would say to be true about the Jesus who we follow. And and we would say that. I think we would say it's maybe even easier for us here to say we try to follow Jesus uh, and we believe in Jesus. We're maybe less less sure about what that means. Do you have any favorite anecdotes about like the political Jesus in the Gospels? Do you have like a favorite uh, favorite little story? Um, I I was I was formed in a tradition, uh, not Disciples of Christ, Mennonite, actually, uh, a a peace church tradition that was very, uh, tried to embed itself in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the the Beatitudes and the words about loving your enemies are things that that have grounded me through throughout my life. So what is something that you think Disciples of Christ does very well as a denomination or as a group of people? Like, what's something that you're really, really proud of? Well, we have a lot of good slogans. Sweet. Um, so, uh, <laughs> um, one of our founders was known, in other words, to say we want to bleed back into the body of Christ. So we kind of laugh at the irony of that, that, that we started a whole new denomination. Um, we say... Uh, uh, but but the but the one that that is in front of us uh, in many ways now is is that we're a movement for wholeness in a fragmented world, and our denominational minister will say that, and we have it on the bulletin here at times. Um, 
And I think that we embody that at the table, uh, doing communion every Sunday at the table to say that all are welcome here. And so there's a certain sense of hospitality, that kind of big umbrella, that wide tent. I think that's something disciples do really well, not drawing a hard line in the sand that says you're in or out. Uh, We don't do that, and I think that's a big strength. Who are some people that you have, like, grown up... um looking up to for as like spiritually or like um, as like wisdom leaders or people that you have just generally been inspired by in your years in the church and either as a Mennonite or either as a disciple um, or as a pastor, like who do you look up to in the world? I had, I was fortunate to grow up uh, with four living grandparents, all of whom were, 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 Mennonite and uh, involved in the church. When I say Mennonite, I I I fear I, uh, people probably think of head coverings and buggies. I I don't mean that. I it's a it's a pretty culturally assimilated denomination that I version of Mennonite that I grew up in. Anyway, four grandparents who who were very active in the church, and that meant a life of of really faithful attendance, which I appreciate now as a pastor. Of sure. But also service, and so um, what that looked like was um, my one of my grandpas was a farmer. When he could, he'd go out to the church camp and lend his uh, myriad skills, building cabins and uh, clearing brush and all kinds of things, just giving time to the institutions of the church that then form people in faith. Uh, generosity in giving financially has been a part of my family's tradition in relationship to the church. Um, and I grew up in a faith community that, that was, uh, multi-generational three generations, my grandparents, parents, and then me and my siblings, great grandparent before he died when I was about five. And, um, so I grew up in a church with a sense of safety and community that was born of those family intimacies, which then then reveal their layers of complexity as you grow older. But I always felt like the church was a place where I could connect with people of all ages and from different backgrounds as well. And so that's a legacy of my, my grandparents and the commitments that I have to the church um, are inspired by them when I think oh, I don't, I don't want to stay late and do this extra thing, but, but, but it's again, worthy of my time and a life spent, spent in such a way as a good life. Uh, in ministry, I have a, a mentor, pastor, friend, uh, Weldon Nisley's his name. He's retired, but a pastor, um, in his last couple of decades of serving at Seattle Mennonite church, I spent a couple of years in Seattle after divinity school and, Weldon was and is a pastor who weds the active and activist spirit and mind with the contemplative. So a voracious reader uh, embedded in, in traditions that emerge out of kind of Catholic spirituality and um, things like Lectio Divina and meditation on scripture and regular disciplined prayer and then things like getting arrested, uh, mm-hmm. um, saying provoc and doing provo- provoking or provocative things. So that's a way that I hope that my career continues to unfold. My ministry development continues to unfold. Whenever you say meditation on scripture, 
what does that look like? Oh, it can look like a hundred different things. Uh, uh, one of the ways, the way that I would say I do that, if I do it much at all, I, you know, is uh, in my preaching, I had teachers who said, you know, you pick up the text. So we preach from, from scripture, from the Bible, and, uh, and you carry it around and you see where it shows up. So I do that every Sunday, you know, another Sunday's coming, read the text that I'm going to preach on, or Monday, read the text, and then carry it around. And where does it show up in the world? Because it's not an isolated, uh, our, our texts are never isolated. We bring something to them and they bring something to us. And so I, I guess that's how I would, I would do it. Other people would do all kinds of other things. Like whenever I think about that, I think about reading a piece of text and then like everything that's ordinary in my life, like I'll be driving and what will remind me of, of a piece of text or I'll be at the grocery store and what will remind me of a piece of text or I'll have an interaction with a person I've never met before. And I'm, I always look for moments that like make a piece of text come alive for me in my real life. And so to me, whenever you said meditation on text, um, I also thought about like the inward journey of looking inward while thinking about a piece of text or seeing how it connects to my day-to-day life. And I really liked that statement, meditation on scripture. It just jumped out at me. Yeah, sure. So really quick, where'd you, how did you, where did you do your divinity school training? I went to Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a, it's a ecumenical university-based divinity school, uh, not, not connected anymore to a denomination, uh, and it had a, had a nice, a pretty diverse student body. I meant to ask you that earlier, which is why I just brought that back up. So I want you to think of like an ordinary congregant, a person who comes to church. Um, what types of individual problems do you think that disciples of Christ and more liberal forms of Christianity are seeking to solve for people in society? I think one of the things, um, I'll put some qualifiers on this, but I think one of the things that white liberal Christians want to do is to fix the social ills of our world. And that comes from a place of, uh, it comes from a good-hearted, well-intentioned place, but it also comes from a place of, of power and, and a certain understanding of our own agency. And I think people are drawn into a community uh, of, of, of generally progressive Christians in some ways to, to say, oh, I, these are difficult problems, but surely we can solve them together. So I think that's something I, you know, I would, we could dig into that and, of course. and, and, and critique the place of power that that comes from and privilege. And those are kind of categories that I employ and deploy in preaching and in ministry, certainly. Um, I think so, so, so addressing things like racism and poverty and um, uh, injustice in its many forms would be a major, a major emphasis how do you how how do you encourage your congregants to critique or um, investigate their own levels of power that they have in the world? Like, do you how do you um, how do you help them to investigate themselves with regards to their own agency and systems of oppression that exist in the world? Hmm. I, um. 
I think one of the things that that we're missing that in terms of how we approach Christianity is is the inner life and self reflection. So I think um, it's much easier to look at other people's problems or or external things. And one of the things that can be hard, especially for those with kind of an activist spirit, is to turn that back into ourselves. So so we we just started a, a series on the prophets here. Um, and it's really easy to hear the prophetic voice and look and say, oh, the city of Columbia's doing this thing and that's, oh, the prophets rail against that. Or, or, or easier targets, um, you know, elected official, you know, nas- federal ofi- elected officials in our, in our national body politic of course. are easy targets when you use the, when you employ the prophetic voice. The Ku Klux Klan mm-hmm. comes up. Easy target. But then, but what is the prophet saying to us, we who also oppress the needy, um, we who, who are also complicit? And so I think that's one of the things, that's where that contemplative mind comes in. And that's why we need it, especially as people of privilege. I, I, I speak as a white uh, person who, who has many of the, all the benefits of someone with white skin today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking into our own power, I think, is one of the most important things that a person can do in society. And it's also one of the most challenging. Um, and so the reason that I found you and this and this denomination is I was reading the newspaper several months ago, and I saw an article about this church voting to make itself a sanctuary what does that mean for this for this church to be a sanctuary? Uh, just practically speaking, uh, we we d- decided in September to to become a sanctuary congregation, meaning that if we were called upon to host somebody who was at immediate threat of deportation from this country because of their immigration status, we would take them in as a protected place. Uh, We are a sensitive location as a church where raids by law enforcement typically do not happen. And so someone could stay and take and, and, and have a safe haven here while trying to plead their legal case to stay in this country. So that's what it would mean. Uh, We haven't been called upon to do that. There are churches all around the country that have also made this declaration, some of whom are hosting people and many of whom are are not at this point. What was it about, um, what was it that inspired you to to do this, to pursue this as a congregation? Like, were there any events that you have seen in the media and specifically that um, inspired you to do this? Certainly the the rhetoric around immigration and immigrants that was part of the last election cycle uh, and that kind of ramped up uh, under the new presidential administration um, has mobilized not only us, but many churches around the country in in this way, Missouri Faith Voices did a training about a year ago that we actually hosted at Rockbridge and introduced many of us to what what it might look like to build a sanctuary network here in Columbia. And so that's when our process started, along with the Unitarian Universalist Church declared themselves a sanctuary sanctuary congregation uh, uh, 
several months prior to, to our process. So that's what initiated this. It, it goes back to that question of what does this story mean or what does this call by Jesus mean today in this time? And it looked different 10 years ago and it will look different in 10 more years, but here's how it can be incarnate today. What would you say to people who disagree with your decision to offer sanctuary? Because the, as you mentioned, the rhetoric is so high. If somebody was really critical of your congregation's decision to do that, what might you say to cool off the situation? Well, there are a lot of a lot of directions from which that critique comes. So it probably depends on what direction it comes from. Some people say it would be breaking the law, uh, uh, and then we say, well, uh, uh, we do not well, that that it's an unjust law, and so we don't feel bound by an unjust law. Um, there are people who would uh, who would say that these people don't deserve to be here and we would say we believe everyone is deserving so there are a lot of different things that we believe uh there are people that would say how can you call yourself a church and we would say well there are many churches who believe what you believe that you can go to and and feel comfortable and welcome and but but having a little bit of discomfort uh from a christian church like this i think is a a, a really good thing and hopefully we're provoking some of that in the community too yeah and it might you know cause somebody to re-examine beliefs that they have and investigate where those beliefs come from in their own lives why do they believe what they believe is it okay to reconsider what i believe is it okay to change my mind especially whenever we're thinking about human beings that's um really kind of an amazing moment in people's lives when they realize that they can change their mind about stuff like that. Certainly we come and we come from a tradition that I think uh, supports all kinds of, uh, of movements around sanctuaries. That's been part of, of the Christian tradition for, for many years, both in this, in this country, but also in our sacred texts. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about. Are there any particular scriptures that you would uh, cite as influential in making a church a sanctuary? Well, the the Hebrew scriptures are old, often called Old Testament, um, talks about cities of refuge, and uh, that's something that we've talked about and looked at. Um, I think for this particular congregation, uh, one of our founding scriptures, we're about what, 36, 37 years old, uh, was from Matthew 25, which is whatever you did for the least of these you did for me. Now, we've talked about the power dynamic that is um, implicit in that scripture and and what does the least of these mean uh, and tried to move out of and beyond that to not think of ourselves as people who are uh, just helping those those other people in need. That's certainly not how we understand or I understand what it means to be a sanctuary church or a church that does justice or serves the world. Um, but there's a another piece of heart in that text, which is about uh, a generosity of spirit and uh, hospitality. And that's something that really... Uh, fits with the personality of this congregation. We have a welcome statement that we say every Sunday that was first born in 2001. It reads, uh, Rockbridge Christian Church joyfully welcomes persons of every race, 
ethnicity, age, sexual and gender identity, economic status, educational level, differing ability into an intentionally inclusive faith community. And so that's uh, our non-scriptural expression of hospitality and generous welcome. Is there a significance to the year 2001 why that came to exist? 2001, I think that's just when the statement came out after some work in the 1990s about around becoming open and affirming. So that's when the LGBTQ question, or then kind of gay and lesbian question, arose in this congregation. And uh, it was not without controversy, but out of that process came, we want to be explicit about our welcome. Were gay and lesbian people ordained prior to 2001 in this congregation? I don't know. In this congregation or our denomination, I don't know what the the history of ordination uh, would be off the top of my head. Okay. So I'm curious if you have any, what are some of your spiritual goals within your future? Like, what are you still hoping to um, accomplish? Like, what are some of the things that you really want to do? As a, like, individually. As a pastor and, and individually. I, I'm not that old. Um, I, in my mid thirties and there's a lot of, of life to live. There's a lot of, uh, things to learn that are the accumulation of years and, and experience. And so I have kind of a cognizance of how time will do its work on me. And I kind of, I look forward to that, I should say. So I don't have a specific objective. What's that going to make me, um, smarter or, you know, I don't, (laughs) but, but I trust that, that, um, that through the practices of this life of walking around with scripture of prayer, um, I'm a avid reader, uh, journaler, those kinds of things. And through sitting with people and walking with people in their lives, that my life will be formed in, in, uh, into this calling even, even more deeply. What are some things that you think that every person should read? Because I love reading too. So I'm always looking for suggestions and recommendations from anybody I talk to. I, I think it depends on people's interests. I have a younger sister who's a middle school language arts teacher and has a oh, my people. master's in library science. And she says people should read what they want to read, what, what excites them. So whatever that is. So what is that to you? What for, excites you? For me, I've, I, I read, I'm on a nature writing kick right now. Terry Tempest Williams is one of my favorite writers. Uh, nature writer, uh, Utah Mormon background, uh, writes in kind of a memoir style and just a, a lovely writer, a poetic writer, but also about uh, nature and has kind of a environmental political perspective as well. So I love nature writing, um, you know, and even like uh, Annie Dillard's Pilgrimage. Oh, I was just going to say Annie that Dillard. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, um, so that's 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 kind of home and soul feel, filling for me. Uh, of late, I've been reading some more challenging theology, theological works about um, about power and race, and so those those are things that are priorities for me. I, I learn and am challenged, and then try to do the work of translating that in preaching and in public ministry. I I read. I wouldn't say I have a great span of knowledge about poetry but I always have a a book of poems that I'm reading um 
and that can be any you know that's kind of wide ranging too that like uh, I love Jane Kenyon um, I love Lucille Clifton um, I you know so it can yeah it can just it can just vary I'm just adding these names to my mental bank to look up later on do you have like a so you mentioned nature do you have like a, a rejuvenating like nature routine that like that does something for you like that like soothes your soul I I I like to go hiking. I, you know, I'm, I can be in the woods at Rockbridge State Park from my office in less than 15 minutes. And mm. sometimes I do that, uh, what if weather permitting, but weather, you know, I'll, I'll do, do it in a lot of weather. Um, so, so that's something that I, I try to do regularly is just hike, go walk, walk in the woods. Um, I, I love to go out to, Eagle Bluffs conservation area, take my binoculars and just see what happens. You know, I'm, I'm a completely novice birder. I I don't know very much, but, um, the other evening I was there and saw what I learned to be a murmuration of starlings, which was just, and, and not a small one. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of starlings converging at Eagle Bluffs at dusk. And so there's always some kind of gift in, in nature if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. So I bet that a lot of people who listen from around the world, you know, they might just now be hearing about this denomination for the first time. Um, but I always want to ask guests this one question. And so you're on a podcast or a show that is about all religions. Um, I have episodes on many, many different traditions and philosophies from all over the world. So why do you think it's important for people to learn about religions in general, whether it can be any religion? I think it's important that we are self-conscious about the way that we make meaning in the world. And religion is, is a place that we do that. Um, you know, we, I, I keep going back to the story piece of it and what stories are, are worthy of our, of the human life. And, uh, and so this is, this is a, a place we can explore. I think I conceive of religion as something that facilitates reflection and questions and widens our perspectives and deepens our inner life. Now, that's not how everybody would conceive of religion by any means, but that's certainly present across many, many religions and traditions, regardless of what other incarnations they have. Right. And I think that's almost kind of a stereotype busting statement too, because I think a lot of people may think that religion limits people's worldview, but it can be so explosive and widening at the same time, um, depending on who is doing the interpreting, it seems. Oh, certainly. You know, I, I, you know, when I encounter, I encounter people, whether in writing or just in person who are militantly opposed to religion or or maybe just Christianity. And there are lots of reactive reasons to be so say, I don't believe in God. And, and so then I ask, you know, then you ask like, well, which God don't you believe in? And I don't, I don't believe in that God. I, Sarah, I, Pastor Sarah, whatever, don't believe in that God, either the the traditions are, as I said, deep and wide and profound and the most 
thoughtful, brilliant people in the in the history of all all humanity have have found their lives grounded in such in such traditions as these, and so that tells us something too. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges that are facing the next fifty years of Christianity as a world religion? Well, there's there's the institutional level of Christianity, um, the 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 crumbling, if I may say, of institutions, not just um, not just religions or denominations, but I mean, we look at things that are happening in in our political life, things that are happening in higher education, uh, in tax structures, all kinds of of things are changing. The foundational the foundationalism of the previous century is just is just um, shifting under our feet, and the same is true for the way that we've expressed Christianity. Um, our denominations are losing members. Pe- fewer and fewer people are affiliating with a religious tradition, and so that's an institutional level question. How much do we invest in maintaining those structures, and and then but and or can we see a way forward beyond or through or without those? And I. I think that's expressed in my ministry life. Uh, some of my greatest colleagues, uh, many of my greatest colleagues, aren't disciples of Christ ministers, but they're from other denominations or other faith traditions, and we have a commonality we find around ecumenical justice work or something like that. So that's that's we're just in progress of this shift in terms of the the country, the world. Uh, who knows what will happen uh, with with uh, shifting global powers and weapons proliferation and technology, uh, cyber warfare, and those kinds of things. Those are problems and challenges for theological thinkers in addition to all kinds of other thinkers to be part of. Uh, but the environmental shifts in our world are are as pressing as any of those as well. Yeah, those are definitely some major concerns that we face just as a species. Absolutely, the the what the, the Anthropocene, anth, what is the Anthropocene era? Is we've been in it for a long time, and the way that it affects our lives, shifts our lives. Uh, I think religion can help us be self conscious about that. I read uh, another thing. I read a newer thing. I read is Orion magazine and. Uh, there was an article in the 35th anniversary edition where a writer talked about uh, how some of the things that we need right now are not just activist impulses, but we need the resources that a tradition like Christianity can offer us. Lament, uh, repentance, a cross, a, a conscious understanding of suffering. Those are things that that are part of the Christian tradition that we need for a, such a time as this. What are some things that you hope um, people take away from this congr- this conversation, whether they are Christian, not Christian, whether they are atheist or agnostic, whether they're Hindu or Buddhist? What are some things that you would like a listener to walk away with today? I want people to know... Um, to know the breadth and depth of the Christian tradition, that it is something that can speak to all of us. It doesn't need to uh, certainly have a great deal of respect for people of other faiths and of, of no faith. That's not, uh, I don't have a evangelical uh, e- evangelist uh, message 
but to say that um, that it's probably deeper than most people think. It's probably wider than most people think. And there we have mystics and we have contemplatives. So you don't have to, especially for those people who grew up in a more rigid or even abusive Christian tradition, you don't have to reject religion entirely or Christianity entirely. You don't have to leave to find uh, meditative, meditative practices, for instance. We have, we have those. And so I want people to know that I feel I, it's, it's a, it's a quite beautiful thing to find that and to discover it and to keep going deeper and deeper because it will go as deep as as we can go and you just lent a really nice diverse uh voice to the perspectives that people may have about christianity in their in their own lives based on what they've either experienced or read about or heard from through hearsay or from people who have direct experiences. And that's why I wanted to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks. It's been fun. Thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. It's been a real pleasure. Appreciate it, Greg. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.